If you have your Bibles with you, we'll turn to John chapter 4, 27 to 42. I'd invite Megan Ford to bring us a reading, and then Bob will come and bring us a message. So the reading is John 4, verses 27 to 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone bought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap, that for which you did not labour. Others have laboured, and you have entered into their labour. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Saviour of the world. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, folks, and a very warm welcome to church. Lovely to have you all here. And always a bit exciting as Christmas approaches. Uh, we, we personally love Christmas. It was a Christmas back in about 1972, three. That's, that put us on the pathway to, to faith in Christ. We were at a little town in Western Australia having a holiday, and we were invited along to the carols night. And Something occurred there that just kind of touched our hearts and we were on our way then. Uh, within a few months, we were believing in Jesus and following him. So I love Christmas. Well, I spoke here a few weeks ago on this account of the 
the account and encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. We didn't re- read the whole account today, but um, I looked especially at, in this account, the way that Jesus dismantles or removes obstacles to the proclamation of the, of the gospel, the gospel of forgiveness and acceptance with God. And so we're, we're continuing today with this idea of uh, studying the way that Jesus dismisses the things that get in the way of the gospel. So I've called this a lesson in gospel, uh, sorry, in obstacle management. The story so far is that Jesus and his disciples were traveling from Judea to Galilee. And it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It seems like he was on a mission that would take him through Samaria, that little part in between Judea and Galilee that the Jews try to avoid. He had to go through there. And come midday, they need a rest. He stops by the well for a rest. The disciples go into town to buy some food. And while Jesus is there resting at the well, a Samaritan woman comes out to to draw water. And he engages her in conversation, asking her, first of all, for a, for a drink. And then proceeds this uh, unpacking of the gospel of eternal life to, to, this, to this woman. Now, we pick up the account here. The woman's about to go back into town. The disciples have been in there buying food. They are just about to come out again. So we pick it up here. Let's pray and we'll look into these things again. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we look into your word, this account that happened 2,000 years ago in that obscure corner of the world that has ever since resonated around and impacted the world, may our hearts be open and our eyes and ears fixed upon your word, Lord God, that the word might be able to transform us, to change us, Lord God, in the ways that you want us to change. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' ministry on earth is going to last about three years as far as we know. And thereafter it's going to be carried forward by these men we call the disciples. So these men, these disciples, are on a very sharp learning curve. Now many of the lessons they learn along the way with Jesus are not going to make sense until after the resurrection and the ascension. When they become exposed to the realities of, of gospel ministry in a in an uncertain and sometimes hostile world. When you become a pastor, you have this kind of vision of what your ministry will be like. You know, sitting around with chaps drinking coffee, sharing the gospel, and everybody will love you. And uh, when you get there, you're laughing, Des Morris. What's the matter? <laughs> when you get there, it's not quite like that. You find that a lot of your ideas are, are sort of... Uh, reshaped by exposure to the realities of the world in which we live and work. And so these disciples are going to be shaped by the world in which they live and and, and work. So these disciples have grown up in a culture that has erected many obstacles to the spread of the word of Jesus. Even though Israel is kind of the nursery into which God will sort of build his church, from which you build his church, there are so many obstacles there to the spread of God's word. So they've grown up in that kind of culture, like we have grown up in a culture that I believe has erected obstacles to the spread of the word of Jesus. Uh, They've been in myself. I've seen them there. Uh, Obstacles like actions and various attitudes. Back in the uh, 1980s, 
when this church was meeting up in Budrum School Hall, uh, Wendy and I, along with others, had a quite an extensive ministry to a uh, a group of people in a hinterland town that was we described them as a kind of a subculture. Lovely folk. A couple of them have been converted. They wanted to share the gospel with their friends, and so we got involved with that. Now these folk were pretty much chronically unemployed, cross-generational unemployment. Not all of them, some were. They were blended households. They were emotionally very volatile. They, they bought and sold things like motor vehicles and never, never gave receipts or, or, or transferred the registration. I don't know how it worked, but somehow it, it, it just worked for them. And so we found ourselves amongst a, a very large group of these people. And the interesting part was that Bible studies began, Christianity Explained was being shared, the gospel was spreading, and people were coming to faith in Christ. Marriages were performed, uh, wonderful things were going, going on, and, and they began to appear at our, our church services. Now, there were folk in our church, none of you folk were there at that time, but there were folk in our church there who, who really tried to reach out to them. It was always going to be very difficult because they were different. And Australians don't do different really well, do we? We, we try, we're getting better, I think, but we don't do different really well. And so it was always going to be quite, quite awkward. But they came to church. Never forget one night church, a young man from that group came along, young teenager, and uh, he, his apparel included a, a razor blade earring. I don't recommend them, but it was part of his kind of uniform in the group that he mixed with. So he had a razor blade earring, and there was a lady in our church at that time, uh, she was a very, very proper lady, and she collared Wendy and said, you must get rid of this young man. Look at his, look at his earring. And Wendy said, no, at least he is in church. And that is so right. At least he's in church where he will hear the gospel by God's grace, he may become a believer. Once you become a believer, the Holy Spirit will sort your life out. But let's get the gospel to him first and not put obstacles in, in his way. I, uh, I'm just reading the uh, latest <clears throat> biography of the country and western singer Johnny Cash. Very interesting, very up and down life, but um, uh, I'm sure a true believer. But there's a little line there that says, church is a hospital for sinners not a museum for saints. That, that's got to be constantly put before us and we've got to be constantly reminded. So we need to examine ourselves and our churches to ensure, and I'm not pointing the finger at anybody or anything, but make sure that we haven't raised obstacles to, to people hearing the good news about Christ and his forgiveness and being given opportunity to respond. Now, Jesus' disciples are going to have to abandon some very deeply entrenched attitudes and prejudices before they will be fit to carry the gospel into all the world. At this well with Jesus and the Samaritan woman, their education by about obstacle, obstacle removal will take a great leap forward as they see Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman about eternal life. Throughout the gospels and the book of Acts, they're still learning. Go to the incident of the, the sheep lowered down from heaven to Peter, to show him that it's okay to go into a Roman household. It won't kill you. So share the gospel with Romans. They're all the time learning. Look at the book of Galatians, all about taking the gospel to 
to people other than Jews. And so their learning will continue. So our first point is the disciples receive a lesson in obstacle management. In 1952, Billy Graham held a great big open-air evangelistic meeting in in, uh, Jackson, uh, Mississippi in the U.S., As he stood there about to start his service, he was shocked. Shocked to see out in the crowd a red segregation rope. Behind this rope, the blacks had to stand, the colored people had to stand. In front of the rope, it was white people. The congregation was just just segregated into blacks and white. And he saw that as a huge obstacle to the command of Jesus to offer the gospel freely to every tribe, people, language and nation. As he stood there and nothing was happening about this rope and he'd spoken about it, he himself went down and removed the rope before he started the service, which I thought was a very sharp lesson for the uh, church leaders in that town in, in that day. Well, Jesus' disciples are about to receive a similar lesson. They return from their food gathering mission in Sychar, And they are gobsmacked, I think, to find that ignoring many cultural and historic taboos, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman about deep spiritual things, things of eternal significance, eternal life. Jews don't normally speak to Samaritans at all. Men don't normally speak to unaccompanied women. And Jewish men, they are meant to show revulsion towards sinners. And it appears like there are some possibly unsavory things in this woman's life. She's had five husbands. The man she's got now is not her husband. Uh, They're supposed to show revulsion at those sort of people. And when the woman herself tries to raise an obstacle to prevent Jesus opening up about her life and her failings, Jesus brushes past that obstacle too to show that he cares about her as a person. He's reaching out to her. He's showing her that she can feel safe. She can know that her emotions are safe. Her feelings are safe with him. Now, it seems the disciples, when they come back from the town, and the disciples, of course, include John, the man who writes this account, they're shocked to find Jesus speaking to a woman and a Samaritan at that. And from the text, we can uh, infer that they really want to ask Jesus, What do you think you're doing? And to ask the woman, and what do you want? Well, at this point, the woman takes the opportunity to slip away. So excited is she about this man she's met that she leaves her water jar behind, races back into town and tells everyone she comes across, come, see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? It's a slight exaggeration. He didn't tell her everything she ever did, but he told her enough that she would know that if he wanted to, he could tell her everything she ever did. And so she stirs interest amongst the people of her town and about this man out by the well, this man by the well, and many Samaritans start filtering out to come and see him. Now the disciples have been buying food, and upon their return, seeing the woman, and then she's gone. They urged Jesus to eat. Now, just sort of suspect by the way it's recorded here is that 
they, they think that he's, he's acting rather recklessly with this Samaritan woman could be due to lack of food. Maybe his sort of blood levels, blood sugar levels have dropped down and he's a bit, bit kind of light in the head and doing things he shouldn't do. Uh, this, is, this is a real thing, but it's a real problem. It's happened to me recently. I had, uh, I had, to, I had to go down to a funeral at Narangbar and it happened to be right at, right at midday, I think it's 12 or 12.30, so I, I went down to the funeral, came back. I, 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 I never miss a meal, ever, except on this occasion. It was just right in the wrong, wrong time, so I thought, oh, forget about lunch, I'll get dinner tonight. And when I came home, I was very keen to get on with a painting job I was doing. I was repainting the guttering on our house and I was just so keen to get started. Forget the food, Wendy, I'll just go straight out to start working. And as I painted the guttering, I would move the stepladder along and one occasion I, I left the paint on top of the stepladder and then moved the stepladder along. Now, Wendy recalls what's happened, I'm sure, but there's this great clang and down comes the paint, paint can. There was paint everywhere. It's all over the footpath, up the wall of the house, on the tank. And I blamed the fact that I hadn't had lunch. It wasn't, it wasn't my being stupid and clumsy. It was just I hadn't, hadn't eaten a meal. Maybe that's what they thought was going on here. Or maybe they wanted Jesus to acknowledge their hard, hard work of, of obtaining food by getting him to eat. You know how you prepare a meal for someone and they seem so preoccupied that they, uh, they don't eat it? And you feel kind of rejected and, and disregarded? Maybe they felt that way. So they say, Rabbi, eat something. Or point two, come see an obstacle-free environment. Now, I can assume from the text here that Jesus has seen the disciples' tacit disapproval of his speaking to a Samaritan woman. Because though I don't doubt for one moment he was hungry, because though he's both God and man, he's human and divine, uh, as, as a human he gets tired, as a human he gets hungry, I'm sure he was hungry, but he takes them on a metaphoric journey to the core of his ministry. You see, though as a human he needs rest and food and drink, yet as divine as God, he's on the Lord's mission and the Lord's mission is people. He's here to introduce people to God. He's here to invite them into God's family. He's here to personally provide a way for sinners to come back to God and to the life that he offers. So in reply to the disciples' command, eat something, he says rather cryptically, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Now, I think Jesus probably has in mind Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So in saying that I... You know, I, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. I think he's, he's really rebuking the disciples for their apparent contempt for the Samaritan woman and the urgency of, of inviting her to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. So I think it's a, very, it's a very kind of cryptic and gentle rebuke, though I'm not sure the disciples at the time realized that, that it was a rebuke, but it was. I have other food to eat. We had the uh, great joy and privilege over uh, several occasions to have the, the, the late great evangelist John Chapman here in our church and a wonderful man he was. And reading again, about, on his, uh, reading again his biography recently, 
he had a very extensive ministry in England, um, quite big campaigns on the universities at Oxford and, and Cambridge, and it was quite clear from Chapo's conversation that he loved the English, he really did. And once he said to us, when we were, I think we were down in Sydney at the time, he said, when the English rebuke you, it's like being hit with a feather. It's only days later that you realise you've been rebuked. Well, I think the rebuke of the disciples here is a bit like a feather. Probably only days later they realise, I think Jesus was rebuking us back there. They, they didn't get what he was talking about. So they say, could someone have brought him food? And Jesus elaborates, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now, what fields? What, what gospel fields could Jesus be talking about? If the disciples looked around them, what, what unsaved peoples would they see? Samaritans, 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 just all, all Samaritans. But they're different, of course. You've got to go through some changes to allow them in. So Jesus is saying to them, throw off your blinkers. Look past your prejudices. Open your eyes. There are Samaritans out there who need to know God. God loves them too. And look beyond that. There are Romans. There are Greeks, Phoenicians, Syrians. God loves them too. And they all are ripe for harvest. <coughs> Pardon me. In Sydney some years ago, we had the privilege of um, hearing some lectures and sermons by a chap called Haddon Robinson. Uh, he, he wrote one of the greatest books ever on preaching. He was a great preacher himself, an American guy. I think he's passed away, I'm pretty sure. But he, he was a great teacher of preachers, wrote a very, very good book on preaching. And he told, told us how back in the late 1960s, he spoke about the the famous San Francisco year of love. Now, you might not remember this, but many of us remember the, uh, you know, if you're going to San Francisco, put a flower in your hair. And so the, the idea was, it was a, it's a great hippie culture. And the idea was they were all going to go to San Francisco, to the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco, establish a big kind of a mobile commune, and it would be a great year of love. And it was the beginning of sort of uh, Nirvana, you know, heaven on earth. And People flock there, hippies, long-haired people carrying guitars, <coughs> wearing sandals on their feet. 1967. And by about the end of the year, it was in total ruin and collapse. Drugs, diseases, disputes, disillusionment, the whole thing was falling apart. Haddon Robinson was called down there to speak to some of these utterly, utterly disillusioned hippies. Timothy Leary promised them the world just take enough LSD and all be well, put LSD in our drinking water and everybody be happy. And, I mean, it was just rubbish, but it was falling apart and these kids were just thoroughly lost. And he was called down to speak to some of these, crowds of them. And he said he spoke and he'd, he'd preach a sermon and they'd say, well, keep going, preach some more. And he taught them and taught them and taught them Many became Christians and they picked up their guitars and put their flowers back in their hair and they walked off to church. However, 
church did not know what to do with them. These people were different. They didn't fit. And so in the end, they began to dissolve and establish their own churches. And so similar happened here in Australia back in, in that era. The 1970s was a, quite a large awakening in America and here in Australia. And there were people like, um, they call them the, uh, the Jesus people I know over in Perth. They were, and there was another one at the house of someone. There was two of those sort of hippie type movements through the church. And so these people were converted, but the church couldn't cope with them. They didn't fit. And so they had to go somewhere else and make their own churches. Well, it was a great movement. Within a few years of Jesus speaking here, Samaritans and Greeks and Romans would be flowing into the church. And the church struggled with this. How do we cope with this? Read the book of Galatians. They're struggling to know how to fit these people into church because that's not expected. But of course, they won't even begin to flow in until the disciples overcome their obstacles to the free spread of the gospel of Christ. In 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Paul asked the Thessalonian believers to pray that the message of the Lord might spread rapidly and be honoured. That word spread rapidly, it's talking about like the spread of water that it might flow and strike nothing that's going to stop it. That it might spread rapidly, the gospel might spread without obstacles and be heard and honoured. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, remove the obstacles, let the people in. Even you disciples carry your historic obstacles, causing you to select only the, those that you think are worthy of the gospel, when everyone needs to hear the gospel. Right now, says Jesus, there's a field ready for harvest. It's called Samaria. Don't place obstacles in their way. Bring them in. The same way we should look out on, look out on our towns and our communities and see them as a field ripe for harvest. We must not place obstacles in their way. We must do our utmost to, to let them in. Well, point three, three kinds of field. Jesus likens Samaria to a, to a, a ripe field, <clears throat> ready for harvest. I, <clears throat> I thought about this. What kind of, <coughs> pardon me, what kind of fields are there? I, I can see perhaps three fields. Fields that are being prepared and planted fields that are, are ripe for harvest and <clears throat> fields that are the harvest. Excuse me. They call water preacher's petrol. Good. So a harvested field is really the church, people who have come to faith in Christ, uh, people who have the knowledge of Christ. A field that is ripe for harvest is one where there is already some knowledge of God, but We've got to put Jesus into the picture. I think of the synagogues that the apostles went to in the early days. They were like uh, prepared ground, but they had to put Christ into the picture. And then there's those fields that are being prepared and planted. <clears throat> Perhaps the rest of the world where there's no knowledge of God, you've got to put knowledge of God in there. So the Jesus says to the disciples, even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. <clears throat> Others have done the work, the hard work, and you've reaped the benefit of their labours. So in case the disciples are developing an inflated view of themselves, and they did at times, remember them saying, 
as Jesus later on passed through Samaria and the Samaritans wouldn't allow him into their village, the disciples said, shall we call down some fire and brimstone, Lord, and just burn them all? Jesus says, you idiots, stop it. <clears throat> so <clears throat> they're developing a somewhat inflated view of themselves. But just in case this is happening, he reminds them that they are only just one link in the salvation chain. Others have done the hard work, the plowing and the sowing, referring to the Old Testament prophets for John the Baptist. Also, there have been others in Samaria because this woman knows about Messiah. Now, the Samaritans recognize the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. You won't find any detailed account of Messiah there. It's there, but it's in very veiled form. Someone's told them about Messiah. And so work has been going on there. And so... They're just going to be following on and building upon what's already been done there. What about Australia? I, I, I'd call Australia a kind of ploughed and planted field. We've had more than 200 years of preparatory ministry. There was a time when there were churches everywhere. Christianity was given a, a privileged position. There was prayer in parliament, religious education in schools, Christian bookshops, internet where you can download great sermons ploughed and planted but if there's a weakness in our system it's that in many cases there have been obstacles which have discouraged people from entering into Christ and the church they're there when people come to our door wanting to know about Jesus regardless of who they are what they look like we need to embrace them and bring them in to welcome and to encourage them whether you're sowing or harvesting always point people to Jesus well, point four, finally, obstacle three, the gospel flows. Now, meanwhile, many of the Samaritans who hear the woman's testimony about this Messiah man out at the well believe and come out from the town. And they urge Jesus to stay with them for two days. Here's a man on a mission, three and a bit years, covering all of Israel, going to the cross, but he can pull out two days and give to one little tiny Samaritan village because they are interested. I find that remarkable. He spends two days in a Samaritan town. He speaks with them and many more become followers. The people who would be dismissed by the disciples have suddenly become a very fruitful harvest. They say to the woman, we, we now no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. That is a wonderful, wonderful commendation. Jesus really is the saviour of the world. Where's that commendation coming from? Samaritans, the despised neighbours of Israel, the traditional enemies of Israel, the people that, that uh, Israelites love to hate. In the gospel turns enemies into friends and it brings people together and it brings peace on earth in Luke chapter 7 at Capernaum a Roman centurion oh, another enemy of Israel a, a, um, an attacker an occupier, an invader hears that Jesus is in town and he sends word and asks Jesus to come and heal his servant now as Jesus approaches to respect Jewish cultural traditions about not entering the home of a non-Jew in case the non-Jewishness rubs up on them 
the centurion sends word to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but say the word, and my servant shall be healed. Now when Jesus hears this, he turns to the crowd with him and says, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And the servant is here. Extraordinary things. Some of Jesus' greatest commendations come from the most unlikely sources and from those that would be considered enemies of Israel. Open your eyes, disciples, because it's going to happen an awful lot in the future. People beyond Israel coming into the church. He's not just the saviour of Israel. He's not just the saviour of Israel and Samaria. He's not just saviour of the Western world. He's not just saviour of nice people or of polite people, polite society. He's the saviour of the world. We just need to make sure the world can get in to hear about Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, one lifetime is hardly enough, Lord, to learn all that we have to learn about you, Father. You continue to rub off the edges on us, Lord God, the rough edges, the prejudices. You continue to mould us and shape us, Lord God. But we pray, Father, with what the life that you have given us. Help us to be receptive to what your word teaches, to be people who are doing the work of God. Father, people who are attuned to what your great salvation plan really is, that we have a, a saviour who is the saviour of the world. There is no plan B. This is your plan, Lord God. This is the way back to you, Father, through faith in Jesus. May we be very clear and bold in proclaiming that, Lord, to your glory and your praise. Amen.